the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. Well, we're glad to be in the house with you on another Monday. I think I told you last week that the Lord was loving on the ducks last Monday. Well, guess what? (laughs) He's still loving on the ducks. We are still having to experience the deluge of rain and uh, precipitation, especially over the last couple of days. We did get a break today, but according to the weather report, the Lord will continue to love on the ducks over the next couple of days. So keep your umbrellas near, keep your jackets near, your um, rain boots, and uh, keep your hearts near the fire of God's grace. Welcome to the Monday edition of Lifeline, your host, Jesse Gistan in the house with you. Let me see here. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine to get started. Let's get it started. Let's get it started. The topics that might be generated by you, the topics that might be generated by me. Whatever we do, let's have Quainania right now, fellowship between you and I around the things of God. Since, as I say every week as the opportunity has given me, we are exercising our constitutional rights, the privilege of gathering together under the free speech amendment, the right to assemble and the right to worship our God without accostment or uh, compelling on the part of our government. And I'm so glad to be able to do that in this format. Radio has been an enormous blessing to that end for yours truly, and I'm sure for you as well. When we think about the practical and pragmatic aspects of radio, how we can be virtually anywhere and be engaged as you and I are in what, on an economic level, theologically, is one of God's most pertinent methods of drawing people to himself, and that is proclamation, communication. Uh, The Greek term broadcast to cast the seed is what we're doing by way of uh, methodology, communicating to the masses the singularity of, uh, of God himself in the specifics of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to preach the gospel abroad, cast the good seed of the gospel everywhere you go. But radio has served many of us for decades. I remember when I was a young believer very young in my walk with God, and he had opened my eyes to the reality of Christ and opened my ears to the beauty of his word, radio became a very pertinent and salient means by which I grew exponentially as I uh, developed discernment around what doctrines and teachings in the Bibles were um, to be understood as a foundation to my, my theological framework and my worldview, my epistemology. 
listening to uh, wise Bible teachers on a number of radio programs, including this one years ago, sage men who were able to expound scripture in a way that allowed me to uh, put together a, a sound theological construct. Uh, and at some point I looked up and I was teaching the word of God in an informal fashion and then ultimately in a more formal fashion. And hence, here I am now after I think we're almost 12 years into this, which is a kind of an amazing thing because I never really thought about radio beyond uh, what most of you guys do. And that is sit and listen to it or walk and listen to it or read and listen to it or ride and listen to it or drive. So many ways we listen to radio. Is that not so? And uh, and if KFAX had to, you know, be devoted to, let's say, uh, listener support in terms of like some radio stations are autonomous. They're not public. KFAX is and therefore it has stockholders and people who support it in its national, international, worldwide Salem. Uh, but if we were kind of a local radio station and needed support. I would support a station that promoted the word of God. I would I would uh, I would give financially as I have done in the past with radio stations that have done what I consider as the most meaningful effort among human beings created in the Imago day that could ever take place in the scope of our daily interaction. The most meaningful thing you and I can ever do is take time to draw near to God as he draws near to us in the word of God. So we have an hour and 50 minutes, uh, give or take a few breaks, to be able to talk about a number of things. And uh, I'm, I'm opening up the phone lines, one 367 to see if you guys might have a worthy topic to to bring to the table. I was uh, I, just to do a little bit of an afterburner. This is not a main topic for me, but just to do a little bit of an afterburner of uh, our last week's discussion around Harriet. As we discussed Harriet, one of the things I, I, I didn't talk about, but I did as I began to speak with people who heard our program last week and, and wanted to chime in on it. One of the one of the very redemptive elements running through the whole of the movie Harriet is how that God calls you to him and how that he calls you to his work. So why do you want to see it? How that when God calls you to him and calls you to his work, uh, he calls you to difficulty. And uh, we we in our men's meeting on Saturday nights at 730 every Saturday night, uh, unless we are scheduled off as we are for the next couple of weeks for the holidays. We are often engaging in topics that are very relevant to men. And one of them recently this Saturday, we uh, we we discussed the topic of discipleship. And uh, as our teacher was laying out the the, the functional role of disciples, uh, he reminded us that a disciple is someone that follows the Lord, follows his teaching, follows his manner of life, follows his word as a slave would follow his master. And the master made it very plain to me, whosoever will follow me must deny himself. That is a requisite to authentically following Jesus. And the other thing that the master said in Matthew 10 uh, is that not only do you uh, are you required to deny yourself, but you have to take up your cross. So denial and taking up the cross becomes a foundational tenet to real discipleship. Uh, denial and taking up your cross. 
and then following Jesus. And what Christ meant by that was uh, to be my disciples, you got to be altogether ready and prepared to deal with the difficulties that come with real biblical discipleship. One of the things I did in our post uh, study commentary, because I'll I'll actually uh, add points of consideration uh, around our topic of, of discipleship, because I do know that discipleship is largely misinterpreted today. Uh, a lot of you may understand what I'm about to say around discipleship uh, is that a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, a lot of ministries will allege to uh, teach discipleship. And uh, you'll have all kind of programs about discipleship as if somehow discipleship is a kind of uh, independent uh, quality or calling in contradistinction to being a believer in Christ. When in fact, the matter, if you are actually a believer in Christ, if you actually are a believer in Christ, you are also a disciple. You really cannot be a believer in Christ and not be a disciple. It's just the fact of the matter. But what I began to explain about discipleship is what I want to share here with you in relationship to Harriet is that um, discipleship simply means to be a committed follower of Jesus based upon being his student and him being your teacher. The term discipleship has as its fundamental meaning a learner. So every believer, if he or she is serious about the word of God, is going to learn who Jesus is, learn who the Father is, learn who the Spirit is, learn what the Word of God teaches. And in so learning, you are a disciple. Now, I say that over against a lot of these programs and systems that are really designed to make people over in the image of that institution, in the image of that organization, in the image of that group or cultic structured church, if you know what I mean. Whenever someone comes to you and says, I want to disciple you, run, run, because discipleship is an automatic state of being for every true believer. And discipleship is the functional relationship that exists primarily between you and Christ. Since the goal of the disciple and the discipler is that the disciple ends up being like his master. And what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 was it is enough is sufficient. It reaches the level of content that when the disciple has become like his teacher, he has arrived. Well, Jesus didn't die for your sins. Jesus wasn't buried under the wrath of God. Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. Jesus didn't take his seat at the right hand of God for you to be anybody else's disciple, but Jesus's. Jesus did not take the throne right of the universe and send the spirit of the living God into your life, who is God himself as well, to rule and reign on your heart for you to become the disciple of any other human being. He did not do that. This is why you don't see the term disciple in the epistles ever. Nowhere in the epistles are the term disciples used. And the reason is very clear that discipleship is a one on one relationship between the believer and his master. And in terms of the qualifications of discipleship, they really did stop with the apostles. 
So when Jesus told the, the apostles, go you into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, it wasn't that James, John, Peter, Matthew, Bartholomew, and the rest were to make disciples of themselves. No, they were to make disciples unto Jesus. When you get baptized, you don't get baptized into the name of Paul, Peter, James, John, Luther, Calvin, uh, 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 Wesley. You get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the triune God, who are distinct in persons and yet one in nature. And you get baptized into them, confessing that you understand the mystery of God in the revelation of Jesus Christ. In being baptized into Christ, you have now entered into the first visible submission process of being a disciple of Jesus. So what I'm getting at is that a disciple of Jesus is not a disciple of any other man. You read in the book of Acts, the disciples did this and the disciples did that. They weren't the disciples of the disciples. They weren't the disciples of Peter, James, and John. They were the disciples of who? Christ. This is why in Acts 17, the Bereans were more noble in that they searched the scriptures to see what the disciples of Jesus said to them about becoming Christ's disciples. Y'all follow what I'm getting at? And there are lots of cults all over the world, lots of church groups all over the world that love to package programs of theology and plop them on people and bring people and force them into the cookie cutter patterns of their own sort of moral, ethical uh, framework of what they project, what it means to be a disciple. In reality, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, if you are authentically born again, if God has opened your eyes to see his glory, if he has opened your ears to comprehend his voice, my sheep hear my voice another they will not follow if you really do know the voice of the son of God in his word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ if you really have had the spirit of God to invade your life raise you from the dead and quicken your soul and give you a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ you know the difference between hearing from Christ and hearing from a man if you don't, you better make your calling and election sure right now because Christ did not save you to make you a slave of men. He liberated you unto a relationship with him. If you are my disciples, indeed, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free from every system designed to bring you into captivity, designed to bring you into bondage, designed to make you over into the image of their own system. And when that happens, you are a slave of men. This is where denominations have collapsed on their face for thousands of years, assuming that they can do the work of which only the Holy Ghost can really do in the life of a believer. And this is why John said in first John chapter two, you have an anointing of God. And he was talking about the quintessential teacher, the spirit of God. And you need not that any man should teach you. That is to say that you are not totally dependent upon a man to know Jesus. You're not totally dependent upon human beings to know what salvation is. God is the one that teaches us what salvation is. This is John six forty five, And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone, therefore, that has learned of the Father and has heard of me will come unto me, Jesus says. So now as we kind of open up this floor, here's my point before I take a break. Harriet was called by God to do what she was uniquely called to do and gifted to do. And guess what? At the, at the beginning of her call, what happened? She lost her relationship with her husband. 
Big blow, wasn't it? Big blow because she wanted him to go and, 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 and he wanted to go, but she didn't want him to go right now. And she did not know that God was going to take him away from her in order to have her exclusively to himself. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If, if any man follow me, he better re- be ready to hate mother and father and sister and brother and wife and children and everyone for my name's sake or else he or she cannot be my disciple. So here's the question. Has the gospel come to you like that? Has the love of God actually penetrated your heart at that kind of commitment level? Or are you a quasi from a distance, halfway committed, professing Christian like most people are, who have never, ever experienced the cost of following Jesus? Very good. It's a very good question to ask yourself, as well as I. It's been 40 years now, and I've, I've understood what it means to lose Lose, lose, lose. Like Paul says, I count all things dong for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, the surpassing, glorious, experiential and promissory knowledge of Jesus Christ. I hope that's the case for you. I've got three lines open. One triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine, one triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine. A lot to talk about, but I want to hear from you as well. Three lines open. One triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine. I'll be right back. And now, back to Lifeline. The time, 531 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let's see, three lines open if you want to call in. Uh, topics are wide open. <clears throat> uh, so the number is one 888 If you want to get your Bible answers um, ferreted, if you want to get them addressed, if you want to uh, you know, have some some topic of concern on your part uh, dealt with. Be glad to engage you. you. Want to talk about the upcoming holiday seasons and how challenging that might be? Be glad to do that as well. We're coming up on a very controversial holiday for some in the church and certainly some in the world, and that is the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of the Living God. And Frequently, you will find Christians bumping head over things like the shape and form that Christmas presents, uh, which I can certainly see can be a difficulty today in terms of the um, <clears throat> the kind of uh, secularization and materialism and and uh, commerce uh, element of Christmas, where we have so frequently succumb to Christmas being just a time of, of purchasing things and gifts and and glitter and uh, and all so- sorts of kind of gaudy attractions. Um, just the materialistic nature of it will often drive people away who are new believers or just believers who don't quite understand or don't want to uh, be able to make the fundamental distinction between the uh, true celebratory nature of the birth of Christ. When you read the Bible, the celebratory nature of the birth of Jesus Christ is undeniable, largely in the book of Luke. You cannot fail to see 
the uh, grandeur of the conception and the grandeur of uh, the revelation that came via the angels, whether it's Gabriel or the host of angels that were in the heavens were opened and the uh, the shepherds beheld and saw and heard and a jubilation of uh, choiristic singing around the birth of Jesus Christ. And therefore, for the church to rightly celebrate the incarnation of the son of the living God is a, is a very apropos thing to do. And I've often stated that while it would be utterly foolish to argue for Jesus's physical birth date to actually have been actual birthday, rather actually to have been December 25th, that would be wrong to do. It is completely uh, appropriate to celebrate his birthday since none of us really fully and actually can know the actual date of his birth. Some have uh, some have uh, pro- proffered the idea of him being born in September for uh, several different reasons, astrological reasons, Jewish calendars, and some traditional bits, but nothing has ever really stuck in terms of the actual day of our Savior's birth. Um and so one day would be just as good as other. By the way, if you don't understand this argument, please recognize that throughout church history, the day in which men and women and societies and groups of people in different parts of the world have celebrated the birth of Christ, even up to the day today is different. Everybody doesn't celebrate the birth of Christ merely in December on the 25th. Some celebrate his birth in January, some February, some in September. It has been variated all throughout church history. So this is not about trying to win a battle on serving, uh, celebrating the birth of our Savior on the 25th of December. We know that that is in all likelihood an unplausible date. But that we would celebrate his birthday, in my opinion, is absolutely wise and honoring. For so many reasons, it's wise and honoring. And I would encourage you, if you are on the fence about it, to simply think about the opportunity that the kind of celebration, family gathering, friend gathering uh, uh, events that occur around the birth of our Savior open the door for us to behave in ways that are much more in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, the Imago Day, and the character of just men made perfect through the atoning work of Christ. And as the angel has said peace on earth and goodwill towards men of God's favor we would always want to promote celebrating what is good but you can't make it a law you can't make it an absolute you can't force it on people and say this is the only day that it should be done and this is the only way that it should be done no leave that to the freedom of men and women to choose for themselves if you don't want to celebrate it don't If you do want to celebrate it, celebrate it, but do what the Bible says. Do all things with an understanding. Do not be corrupted by pagan approaches to it. Do the right thing. Don't don't find yourself in a quandary of having to explain certain pagan practices uh, as syncretistic in your expression of worshiping the Savior. That is exactly what's going on today. Um but in any event, I think the joy of being able to gather around uh, the Son of God and to have good food and fellowship with one another is a wonderful thing. And, and even to pass out gifts one to another, to express our love for one another. And love is giving uh, when we think about what God did in giving his Son for our sins and for our life. It's a beautiful thing. So I've got three lines open, one 367 Let me go to line number one and talk with Dan in Sonoma. Dan, what's your thoughts or 
comments today, my brother. I want to mention three books that affected me for about 40 years ago. Sure. When I was a, a young child and teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was called Amos Fortune, Free Man. Mm-hmm. And then there was Freedom Train, which was written by Harriet Tubman. And then there was uh, a short biography of George Washington Carver. Uh-huh. And I didn't know what uh, what the role, the evil role of uh, bushwhackers was until I read that book. Okay. And also the the book about uh, Amos Fortune, Free Man, uh, demonstrated to me how practical his faith was because mm-hmm. he was a tanner and he freed uh, not only his wife but several other people. As he uh, amassed his his money, right, he bought the freedom of several other people. And I didn't know, I wouldn't have known about this uh, history if I hadn't run into these books. Right, Providence did that for you, um, and you say that they really kind of gave you a, a, a paradigm shift. In what way was that, Dan? Well, I just thought that you you took a political position. You're for something or against something. Mm-hmm. But he took a position. He was for it. But then he he advocated for it and he worked for it. Mm-hmm. He lived out his beliefs by taking action. Mm-hmm. 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 And and I think that that's something that will become a, a, a significant topic for us again in the future, where cultural idols become so massively intrusive into our lives that what we now, uh, Dan. Uh, take for granted in terms of our freedoms will once again uh, require a robust B-side theology that is uh, orthopraxy versus mere orthodoxy. And that will shift a lot of us uh, out of a kind of uh, stained glass, uh, aloof approach to uh, many of the practical challenges that life brings to us today because we're free not to to um, to to have to struggle on a political, social, uh, uh, you know, civil rights level, personal rights, human rights level. But there is a time coming just based upon the nature of eschatology that we will, you know, we will once again do what Amos did, do what Harriet did, do what Carver did, do what many of the uh, earlier uh, pioneers of freedom did across the world again in all of the different manners in which they exercised their gifts. Some were overt in terms of their opposition to slavery and fought in the war. You you would know that as well. Some were much more subtle in their uh, approach to seeking to advance freedom of, of colored people and others as 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 uh, as we would know. And then you would have people who would be willing to go into their own private resources, as we are talking about Amos, uh, to to purchase slaves. That happened a lot with as many people as possibly could occur. First Corinthians seven around verse 21 is coming into view. If you can be liberated, then use that power to be liberated from slavery. Uh, but for the believer, it has to be done in a way that it doesn't turn into a kind of revolt against the state. And that, that has been one of the major battles uh, that, that the church has been struggling through of lately around civil, around uh 
you know, uh, social justice? How do we engage these kind of horrific cultural idols when they are blatantly contrary to the word of God? Well, you just brought up some excellent heroes and examples of how people just work within the scope of their influence and the scope of their power to affect as much good as they possibly could. Um, without finding themselves just completely wholesale given over to, um, you know, to uh, an overtly hostile battle with the beast. For me, that is prudent. In fact, in the movie Harriet that I just promoted last week, Dan, there was a preacher who was a significant part of the movie. He he was in the opening scene telling the slaves to obey what Scripture says. And he was saying that in the presence of the slave master, servants, obey your masters in the Lord and do not be given to purloining or, or covetousness. And, and know that uh, if you suffer for righteousness sake, um, that God will be the avenger of 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 such. Uh, and, and at the same time, while he's saying that, Dan, guess what he's doing? Covertly helping, helping slaves to escape. So he's called to preach. He's called to preach the word of God. But he understood the nuance between preaching those texts in a way that allowed them to tell the slaves to be uh, dignified in the context of slavery, but did not infer by that text of scripture that they did not have the right or um our privilege of being freed from that diabolical system. So he worked between the texts to not only promote the word of God, but to then also liberate many people covertly. And he was successful for a long time. And I think that that actually uh, gives credence to your point. And uh, one other thing is then you have maybe about five books that have descended to us from Frederick Douglass. And he stated the unstated. Yes. Uh, in, a, in a very embarrassing way, he states things and uh, calls people's reputation into question correctly. I mean, uh, uh, what he did was uh, he said the emperor had no clothes. Right. Right. He used a method of philosophy that allowed his reason. Uh, uh, Frederick Douglass was a thinker. And he used reason as his sword for dividing between flesh and spirit and, and marrow and bone. And he, uh, he, he sought to help men to understand how important it was to rationalize their reason their way through these abominable practices. That was his contribution to the process. And people that were given more to the active side didn't understand that. They did not, they did not uh, actually agree with that process. And that's where we are today. Uh, there are some of us who are, who are uh, completely persuaded that it requires an intelligent, uh, reasonable, uh, solid, epistemological conviction rooted in revelation that requires us to sit down and reason through these things while others are saying hey you can reason all day uh we we feel like we're more compelled to have to take up arms and deal with this on a much more brutal level and 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 they both are working for the same end but they're doing it from two different vantage points and if you're not gifted in either of those areas 
you're going to make a mess out of trying to advocate uh, freedom and, and autonomy for human beings. And so Frederick Douglass, as controversial as he was, was a statesman, and he had a lot of very, very good ideas, as you are now stating. Listen, thanks, Dan, for the call. Got to take a hard break. Got to pay a bunch of bills. All the lines are open. one 367 5329 1-888-367-5329. Whomsoever the Son shall set free will be free indeed. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we're back at the time 550 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. <clears throat> Want to call? one 367 5329 Let's go to line number one and talk with Sean in Redland. Sean, are you there? Hi, Pastor Jesse. How are you? I'm great. What's going on, man? Good, good. Hey, I was calling because I had a question. Um, I was listening to a series that you did. It was a while back. Um, it was on the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh and there was a section in it that, uh, where you were dealing with the idea of um, um, the like a long je- a long time after after Messiah comes. There's this long extended time that we would still be in. Uh, I'm not phrasing it like I should. I know, but um, I was just I, I agree with with. The idea that everything in Daniel 70 weeks has happened, and we're in that very last, last bit of time uh-huh. in the 70 weeks, and we've been there for a while, mm-hmm. and we'll be in there until the Lord comes back. But I was just, my question was, when you get to the point, I wish I had my Bible in front of you, I have to be driving right now, so I apologize, but um, there's a point in that in that passage where um, I'm just, I, I just don't, I don't understand how we go from uh, how you how you teach it in the text? I, I see it there, but I don't know how to teach it in that particular text where you go from where you get this extended period of time at the end of the Daniel chapter where we're at now. That, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. You're talking about Daniel okay. chapter nine, twenty four through twenty seven, where Daniel yeah. is addressing the seventy weeks, and in that in that text you have generally two schools of thought. That's working with what is called the 70 weeks of Daniel. One school of thought is what is the the premillennial position that fundamentally uh, employs a gap theory hermeneutic in the Daniel chapter 7 text where it allows for the 69 weeks to encompass the period in which the children of Israel were called out of Babylon back to Palestine under uh, King Cyrus and Artaxerxes for the rebuilding of the the temple and reestablishing thereof. And and that that initial starting point, without being specific in terms of calendar dates, which is problematic, we would hold to be true. In Daniel 9.24, it says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city. That term determined comes out of the Torah, out of the Tanakh. Uh, Not the Tanakh, but the Torah out of the Pentateuch, where God in the covenant um, had determined, he had decreed the punishment of Israel uh, in uh, cap- uh, Babylonian captivity for 70 years 
as a consequence of breaking Sabbath. And so they had to do uh, a seven, uh, seven times 10, 70 year uh, Sabbath violation punishment. uh, And then that they would be, they would be delivered out of it. But as you note, that seven times 70 ends up being 490 years from the time of their captivity all the way up to uh, the uh, the uh, calling of Jesus Christ when the numbers get worked out accurately. Here's how the language unfolds. 70 weeks are, are determined, verse 24, upon your people and upon the holy city to finish transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 24 of Daniel 9 is often understood by the premillennial dispensationalists as the uh, the the coming of Christ uh, up to the time of his baptism, but not in terms of his cross work and the accomplishment of eternal redemption thereby. And so for them, they have the prophecy leading to the coming of Christ, but then they enter into a 69th to the 70th week gap theory given in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. That's one set of numbers. And then he says, and three score and two weeks, that's two sets of number. Seven weeks and 62 weeks makes 69 weeks. That's two sets of numbers. And then he goes on to say, shall the streets be built again and the walls in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Now, verse verse 26 immediately moves us into the 70th week. There is no gap theory between verse 25 and 26. It says after the 69th week, and if we were to start the 69th week in the time of Cyrus, it ends at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, where he would have been about 33 years old. This would have been about AD 29 or AD 30, as we have postulated his crucifixion would have taken place in AD 33. There are many scholars today who are taking a uh, much more... Um, a contemporary view that the crucifixion of Christ was in the AD 30 or AD 31. But with all of the historical and uh, secular as well as astrological uh, um, evidences that would bring to bear upon the signs that were taking place at the very time that Christ was being crucified on uh, on Passover evening in either AD 30, AD 31 or AD 33, we have some real controversial issues. I won't go deeply into that, but when I posit all the data together, the most plausible date is the a historic view of AD 33 because of what happened ecologically in terms of the eclipsing of the sun and, and the earthquakes that took place and a number of things that, that can be proven to have occurred during that time. But my point is this, um, Sean, that when you look at Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, as the premillennialists would try to take that last week 
and reserve it till the end of time and make us to operate in a gap theory of a kind of uh, indiscriminate period where God is just kind of letting the church do its thing and then is going to reattach that last 70th week to uh, what is called the time of the Jews or the time of uh, the restoration of the Jews. There is no hermeneutical uh, justification for that. There is no necessity of it. If you look at the text explicitly, verse 26 says, and after three score and two weeks, that is 69 weeks. If I'm recalling that correctly, that's 483 years from the time that Cyrus gave the decree in that 483 year would have ended up at the very time in which Jesus was baptized, which means, uh, I mean, which at the very time that John the Baptist started his ministry, which was three and a half years before Jesus started his ministry. John started about 26 AD. He goes up to 29 AD. Jesus starts at the end of John's ministry at AD 29 and 30, and he ends his ministry at AD 33. This would have put the uh, prophecy of verse 26 into a three and a half year window period where Christ is crucified, leaving what the New Testament, as well as Daniel chapter uh, 11 uses concerning Antiochus Epiphanes, this three and a half period where we have in the book of Revelation, a time times and a half a time or 12 months or uh, uh, not 12 months or 42 months, as you read in the book of Revelation, which the book of Revelation is telling us that we are now reattaching a second half of the last week in order to understand how that second half of the last week works. You're going to end up with one, one or two, one of two conclusions. Either it's talking literally about a literal three and a half years, wherein the whole of the book of Revelation particularly from chapter four all the way to chapter 22 is now crunched into the small window of tribulation, literally, or we're talking about a symbolic number of time that constitutes a period of tribulation that would encompass a long period of time. In fact, the period of time that most reformed theologians hold to is the whole new Testament period. So when you read in revelation chapter 10, revelation chapter 12, a time, a times and a half a times, or 42 months, as we read in the book of Daniel chapter 11, what what Revelation does is takes the motif of the Egyptian deliverance and the Babylonian captivity and use them as symbolic frameworks for teaching the church how it will go through the same kind of exodus deliverance, wilderness sojourn, Babylonian assault, but ultimate Jerusalem triumph as we find in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 that Jerusalem stands clear while Babylon falls and when the smoke is cleared, all of the people of God are together in the New Jerusalem imagery and motif after this three and a half years of tribulation. I hope as I'm sharing that with you, you are starting to get at least a kind of framework of the hermeneutic, and this is an old hermeneutic. It's not it's not even as new as the premillennial dispensational view that's held by Darby and others who started this thing about 100 years ago. This is an old hermeneutic that says you just can't hold that last half of the last week because it says over in verse 27, it says it like this. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. 
And in the middle of the week, that means a week being seven days in the middle of the week, meaning you got now three and a half days left in the middle of the week. He shall cause sacrifices and oblations to cease. The way we interpret that scripture is Christocentrically. This is not about the tribulation. This is not about the Antichrist. This is about Jesus going to the cross. And when he died on the cross, he rent the veil of the temple. The angel rent the veil of the temple. Sacrifices and offerings cease. There is no other sacrifice for sins but what Christ accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. And from the time that Christ died to where we are now, we have been living in that last half of the week. Listen to what it says. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week he shall cause sacrifice and oblations to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24 to the disciples. You shall see the abomination that make it desolate arising when you see flee. What was Jesus talking about? The demolishing of the temple, the destruction of the old Jewish system, the uh, dispersing of the Jewish people because they had rejected Messiah. So that in order for them to be saved now, you don't go to Jerusalem. You don't go to the temple. You go to Christ. The only way that men and women can be saved today is by coming to Jesus Christ. So that what's happening in this last era of the church age from Christ to now, which is described symbolically by the last half of the last week of Daniel chapter uh, nine, the 70 weeks of Daniel, is that simultaneous with men and women becoming saved is tribulation abounding from generation to generation and increasing until Christ comes Again, that is the fundamental way in which Reformed theology has taught this text Christocentrically, and that satisfies me in terms of the way the book of Revelation unfolds itself. Or else what we have, for me, um, Sean, is interpretations of the Daniel text that are radically antichrist-centered and very minimally highlighting the success and triumph of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, if you look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Well, the premillennial dispensationalists call this the Antichrist. And what we say is what covenant? And then they have to get into some very spurious or opaque or kind of a nebulous interpretation of a covenant that he makes on a political level with the Jews. Well, nothing in our text is talking about political covenants. There's only really one covenant that we're dealing with. The covenant of grace or the covenant of the gospel. And we've had two covenants that have largely encompassed the world in terms of uh, God's will, the old covenant and the new covenant. And if he's breaking a covenant in the middle of the week, what covenant is he breaking? What covenant did they establish? See, so for me, dispensationalists have a lot of problems with their interpretations fundamentally because it's not Christ-centered. It doesn't exalt Christ. And it has a lot of questions to answer around covenants. Covenants, what kind of covenant? Covenant with who? Covenant for how long? And how can you establish those covenants on a biblical, exegetical, expository basis going forward? Not just in the book of Daniel, going forward, because the the New Testament is completely silent on this kind of deep, involved exegesis 
that is so Jewish centered that it basically just denies Pauline theology or Petrine theology or Johannine theology, any kind of plausible insight into how things will pan out if we are if we are just listening to premillennial dispensationalists. Just throw out the New Testament because Paul didn't know what was going to happen in the end. Peter didn't know what was going to happen in the end. And certainly John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he didn't know what's going to happen in the end. That's all to be understood by premillennial dispensationalists who are largely hedging their bet in the Old Testament, not through apostolic doctrine. And this is why I've rejected it many years back, because they just don't have a sound hermeneutic uh, that involves engaging uh, the epistles and the book of Revelation in a coherent fashion. I know that was long and drawn out, but this has actually been something that I've wanted to talk about for a while. So I actually appreciate you bringing it up. Very difficult issue. Um, But, you know, there are a few out there, Sean, that have done some good in terms of how to uh, help you understand this interpretation I'm sharing with you. And if you if you wanted to email me, I could send you some some guys to listen to or some books to to buy around it. That will give you a little bit of a better framework. Listen, thanks for the call. I got to take a break way overdue on the Monday edition of Lifeline. All the lines are open. one 367 One more note on this one here, though. Uh as much as I took the time to actually go into verse 24 through 27 from a uh, from a reformed standpoint, from a Christocentric standpoint, uh, I don't expect most people listening to get it because the diet that is taking place today in most of your Christian ministries does not utilize a radical Christocentric hermeneutic. It it basically uses a dispensational model that basically takes Christ out of the interpretive process going forward. So uh, but one day we will find ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, engaged in this topic of eschatology for the saving of our souls. And at that time, I really do believe the spirit of God will help us all get a better grip on interpreting scripture in a way that honors him, honors the son and honors the father and therefore will preserve the church from um from the kind of divisiveness and separation and kind of uh, lack of clarity on this topic. Let me take a break. Let me pay up all the bills and we'll come back. Three lines open, one 367 5329 I'll be right back. 